Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I have a jam-packed episode for you today. I'm flying solo again for today's episode. I was planning on having a few guests on to review the Inter match, but normally I record the match reviews on Monday nights, and this Monday was Valentine's Day, so I decided to take this one on my own. I'll have plenty to say about that match in part one. Not to worry though, we will have some guests back on later in the week to review Thursday's match against Barcelona. I'll preview that match in part three, but before that in part two, we'll review our latest Primavera match. So let's start with the big match on Saturday against Inted. As I'm sure you're aware, the match finished 1-1. Lorenzo Insigne opened the scoring from the penalty spot only seven minutes into the match. And with that goal, Insigne passed Diego Maradona as the third most prolific goal scorer in Napoli's history. Now again, as we said when he tied Maradona, Insigne played many more games and the rules were very different back then, but that's still quite the accomplishment. Insigne could well catch Matic Hamsik for second, but it won't be easy. Hamsik scored 120 goals for Napoli, so Insigne needs to average a goal every other match for the rest of the season to catch Maricaro. Victor Osiman drew the foul on Stefan Defry to win the penalty, so 83 days after suffering that gruesome face injury against Inter, Osiman drew the penalty leading to the opening goal in the return fixture. That was the fourth penalty kick that Osiman has drawn this season, which is the most of any player in the top five European leagues. Patrick Kendrick had a great stat on Osiman in the English broadcast. He noted that Osiman has now played the equivalent of one full season in the Italian top flight. He scored 16 goals in 38 appearances, which is really quite impressive because Osiman doesn't take the penalty kicks for Napoli. Just to put that into context, 
last season's top five goal scorers from open play were Cristiano Ronaldo with 23 goals, Luis Muriel with 20, Romelu Lukaku with 18, Chiro Immobile with 16, and Dusan Vlahovic with 15. So if this was all last season, Osimhen would have tied Immobile for fourth most goals from open play, and that does not even take into account the fact that he had two serious injuries during that time. Anytime a player is out for an extended period of time, it takes him a little while to regain his form. Now, Napoli looked really strong for the first 30 to 35 minutes of the match, but we weren't able to score a second. Piotr Zielinski came the closest, hitting the upright in the 12th minute. Unfortunately, we lost Matteo Politano during that stretch as well. He pulled his calf muscle and was forced to leave the match, so all of a sudden, we do not have a right winger. In all likelihood, Eli Felmas will fill the void until one of Politano or Lozano returns with Adam Unes providing an option off the bench. Though there have also been rumors about Kevin Malqui possibly playing on the right wing. We'll talk more about that in part 3. That could be because, as we saw in this match, that is far from the best position for Elmas. We also lost Stanislav Lobotka. We learned after the match that he strained his right thigh. So we'll have to see how long both of them are out for. But neither are expected to be in the squad against Barcelona. Inter closed the first half well and carried that momentum into the second half where Eden Dzeko equalized only two minutes after the restart. The momentum shifted in Inter's favor in the second half. They controlled the tempo, and Napoli seemed quite content to let them control the tempo. Luciano Spalletti made some interesting changes, changes that made it clear that Napoli were content with a draw. That spurned quite the debate amongst Napoli fans about whether this was the right approach to the match. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time unpacking that in this review, We'll also revisit our three keys to the match, but first let's review the starting lineups. Massimiliano Faris was on the Inter bench with Simone Inzaghi serving a one-match suspension. He lined up in Inter's usual 3-5-2 formation with Samir Handanovic in goal. As expected, Federico Di Marco started over the injured and suspended Simone Bastoni on the left side of the back three. Stefan De Vrij played in the middle of the back line and Milan Skriniar played at right center back. Ivan Perisic started at left wing back and Denzel Dumfries started at right wing back. Marcelo Brozovic, Nicola Barella, and Hakan Chalonoglu played in the center of the midfield. And Lautaro Martinez and Eden Dzeko started together up top. For Napoli, Luciano Spalletti went with the lineup that we were expecting, which represented only one change to the squad that he fielded against Venezia. He lined up in his usual 4-2-3-1 formation with David Ospina in goal. Kalidou Koulibaly returned from AFCON to start over Juan Jesus at centre-back alongside Amir Rachmani. Mario Rui started at left-back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started at right-back. Even though Frank Zambo and Gisa returned from AFCON as well, Lobotka started in the double pivot alongside Fabian Ruiz. With how well Lobotka played in Anguissa's absence, I think he earned the right to start in this match. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing and Matteo Politano started on the right wing. Piotr Zielinski played in the number 10, and Victor Osman started at striker. So those were the starting lineups. Now, I normally go straight into our three keys to the match, but I'm going to change things up a little bit today. I want to start with the debate I mentioned amongst Napoli fans. As I mentioned, Inter took control of the match in the second half, and Napoli looked far less interested in pushing forward. We had our chances, but the second half had a very different feel than the first. I think what really set some of our fans off was when Spalletti made his final set of changes. He made three changes all at once in the 84th minute. Now before I get to the personnel, let me quickly address the timing of the changes because a lot of people were upset that Spalletti waited so long, particularly to bring on Dries Mertens. 
In Spalletti's defense, the ball did not go out of play from about the 74th minute to the time of the changes. Inter had a throw-in in the 74th minute and then the ball stayed in play for 10 minutes. So even if Spalletti wanted to make those changes sooner, he could not. Now, you could say that Spalletti should have made at least one of those changes even before the 74th minute. Most fans wanted Mertens to come on the pitch sooner. Spalletti could have easily replaced Zielinski with Mertens and played Mertens in the 10. Zielinski wasn't having a particularly strong match anyways. And then when he took out Osiman, he could have pushed Mertens up to the 9. However, that would only make sense if Spalletti wanted to go after the win. And as we'll come to see, that was not in fact the approach. So let's talk about the personnel. Spalletti replaced Osiman with Mertens, Insigne with Unas, and Zielinski with Juan Jesus. I think most of us would have preferred to see Victor stay in, but in general, we were fine with that change. It was late in the match, and Osman only just got back from an extended layoff. Also, it was a like-for-like -like change. Osman and Mertens are both strikers. Likewise, Insigne was also out injured for a bit, and he and Unes were both wingers, so that was probably fine as well. But the other change is what had people scratching their heads. Spalletti replaced an attacking midfielder in Zielinski with a center back in Juan Jesus. That facilitated a change in formation from the 4-2-3-1 to a 3-5-2. Mario Rui and Di Lorenzo moved up to play as the wingbacks. Eli Felmes dropped to join Anguissa and Lobotka in the midfield. And Mertens and Unes played as the front two. Now, a lot of people were offended by the fact that we had five defenders on the pitch. I wasn't too offended by that because it happened in conjunction with a change in formation. We had five defenders on the pitch but we weren't playing exclusively with a five-man back line. The whole point of the 3-5-2 is the wingbacks play both as attackers and defenders. In the attacking phase, they join the attack. That's when it's considered a 3-5-2 or even a 3-3-4. It's only in the defensive phase that they drop and we have five at the back, which I don't see a problem with when we're defending. I was more surprised to see Spalletti go with Mertens and Unas as the front two. I would have much rather seen Mertens paired with either Osimhen or Petania there. I know Unas is a very creative player, but he also had not played in a while. He went to AFCON, but he never played because of a heart irregularity. Also, I don't think we've ever played Unas and Mertens together in a front two, so of all matches, this seemed like an odd one to start experimenting in. Regardless of the setup though, it definitely seemed like we were playing not to lose, rather than to win. In fact, the second change Spalletti made gave a good indication of what to expect. He replaced Fabian Ruiz with Frank Zambo and Gisa. Now, you would expect Anguissa to replace Lobotka because they are similar players in the sense that neither of them get forward a whole lot. Fabian is the most attack-minded of the three. So even before those final three changes, it seemed like we were already preparing to defend the draw. That brings us to this debate that I keep referencing, which centers on whether protecting the draw as opposed to pushing for a second goal, was the right approach given the circumstances. I'll start with my original view, which was that this was not the correct approach, and then I'll lay out the counter-argument. I initially felt like we should have gone after the win. We're playing in a pretty energetic Stadio Maradona, even at 50% capacity. We control our own actions, and if we win, we move to the top of the table, even if only temporarily because Inter have a game in hand, but that would put more pressure on Inter to win that game in hand. On the flip side, by playing for the draw, we would remain one point behind Inter in the table. If they beat Bologna, we would be four points back. However, because Inter won the Girona Andata, 
they would have the better head-to-head record, or as the league puts it, they would have more points in direct matches between the two clubs. That means to overtake Inter in the table, we would actually have to make up five points. To simplify things, I tweeted that we would need Inter to lose two more games than us over the final 13 matches of the season, which seems unlikely considering they've only lost two matches all season. To be more precise, we would actually need Inter to suffer one more loss and one more draw than we would over the final 13 matches, and that certainly seems more likely than two losses. Inter have two losses through 24 rounds, which means they're due for one more loss before the end of the campaign. They have drawn six matches so far this season, so they're averaging a draw every four matches. That would suggest that Inter would draw three more matches before the end of the season. So in theory, Inter could drop six points alone just from draws. However, a closer look at Inter's draws and their schedule would suggest otherwise. Of those six draws, only one of them was against a team outside the current top five, which was Sampdoria on match day three. The other five draws were against Atalanta twice, Juventus, Milan, and now us. The only top five team Inter have remaining in the schedule is Juventus. They probably have the easiest run-in of any of the clubs in the top five. So that's why I felt like a win in this match was very important. On the other hand, Inter also have the busiest schedule of any of the top five clubs. First, they have two matches coming up against Liverpool in the round of 16 of the Champions League. Those will be two very intense matches. Second, they will play two more Milan derbies in the semi-finals of the Coppa Italia. Those will be two very intense matches. And third, they have to play that makeup game against Bologna, which is not necessarily the most difficult match, but it still means Inter will have another week where they play multiple games and their opponent does not. So with that schedule, it is quite possible that Inter draw points against lesser opposition in the home stretch of the campaign, especially if they pick up some injuries along the way. So that's an argument in favor of playing for the draw. The main argument I've seen in support of this view is that by pushing forward, we would have risked exposing ourselves at the back. And that's true, there's a give and take with football tactics. Even Juric's clubs don't score many goals because they are so defense-minded. On the flip side, Atalanta concede so many goals because they are so attack-minded. So by seeking a goal, you could actually achieve the exact opposite. If we conceded a goal and lost the match, Inter would potentially open up a 7-point gap, and then they'd be practically impossible to catch. It's also worth noting here that a 1-1 draw against the best team in the league is not that bad of a result. Of course, the timing is what makes it seem worse. But if we fail to win the Scudetto, it wouldn't be because we tied Inter. It would be because in addition to that, we dropped points to Empoli and Spezia. Now, this is something I don't think many fans will like to hear, but it's also worth reminding ourselves that our top priority is still to finish in the top four. We've adjusted our expectations as the season has progressed, which is totally fine, but we absolutely cannot jeopardize a top four finish. Now, I suggested this on Twitter, and one of the responses I got, which I think is a fair point, was that the risk of losing a point was far outweighed by the reward of gaining three points. I'm going to come back to risk tolerance in a moment because that's what I think this debate ultimately boils down to, but people also noted that the risk was even lower because the fourth and fifth place teams, Juventus and Atalanta, played each other this round. So if we gambled and lost, then we wouldn't actually lose that much ground. If there was a winner, the fourth place team would have gained ground on us, but the fifth place team would not. If that match finished in a draw, which it ultimately did, they would both gain a point on us, but in their view, it's just a point. Now that's where we're reminded of last season, 
and the importance of one point. Of course, we missed the Champions League by one point last season. For those of you who have listened to this show for a while now, you know how important I think Champions League qualification is. I've been preaching that for the last two seasons. Now, there is a key difference between this season and the previous two. In the previous two seasons, we were nowhere near the top of the table. We were only fighting for Champions League. This season, the top five race is so tight that we're simultaneously fighting for both the Scudetto and for Champions League qualification. And that's where the level of risk tolerance comes in. I think those who are on the risk-taking side of the spectrum would have liked to see the team take more of a chance in the match and try to secure all three points. Meanwhile, those who are on the more risk-averse side of the spectrum would rather not gamble at the risk of losing all three points. So those are my thoughts on the whole situation. Hopefully that all made sense. Whichever side of the spectrum you are on, this is a subject that's fun to debate, but not so fun to argue about. There's no right or wrong answers here, just differences of opinion. Alright, let's close this review by talking about the match itself, and we'll do that by revisiting our three keys to the match. My first key to the match was that we needed to be mindful of the fact that Inter are capable of scoring in so many different ways, which is why their attack is so difficult to stop. Now, I broke this one down into multiple mini keys to the match, each based on the different ways that Inter score. The first mini key was to watch out for crosses from the right wing because Inter score about 20% of their goals from crosses, and most of the time it's from the right. Unfortunately, Inter's one goal of the match came from a cross by Lautaro Martinez from the right wing. I thought Inter were pretty fortunate on that goal, though we almost would have been better off if Dzeko made better contact on the header. Instead, the ball bounced off Di Lorenzo, who had no time to react, and then it bounced off Koulibaly before falling back on the foot of Dzeko. Credit to him for the finish, but I think it was a pretty lucky goal. Now, I know Di Lorenzo had one of his more forgettable matches, but he didn't really have time to react to Dzeko's header there so I don't blame him for the goal. Now heading into the match, I was particularly concerned about the matchup between Mario Rui and Denzel Dumfries, but Mario Rui, with a lot of help from Koulibaly, was able to shut Dumfries down. He had that one chance late in the first half where he got free on the right side, but his shot was pretty far off target, and then other than that, he didn't do a whole lot. The second mini key to the match was to avoid committing fouls in and around the area because Inter are so good from set pieces, we absolutely smashed this objective. We obviously didn't commit any fouls in the area. Off the top of my head, I can't think of many free kicks conceded in dangerous areas either. But the most impressive stat for me was that we conceded only two corner kicks in the entire match. Not only that, Inter did not get their first corner kick until the 90th minute, which is really quite remarkable. The other two ways that Inter typically score goals are through intricate passes in the middle of the park and through shots from distance. I thought we did a great job of preventing those as well. Inter had only 7 shot attempts in the entire match and only 2 of those shots hit the target. I thought Lobotka and Fabian played a key role in preventing those types of goals. When Inter crossed midfield, they set up shop just in front of our center backs and took away the center of the park. And then you had the play of Kaladu Koulibaly who was an absolute beast in this match. He came back from AFCON and played like the true champion that he is. Now, yes, he had a couple of poor touches in the first half, but nothing came of them, and the positive plays far outweighed the negative. He made so many fantastic tackles in this match, but three of them stood out to me the most, and I'm pretty sure to many of you as well. The first was the one on Dumfries. 
he's probably the fastest player in the entire league and he had a head start but somehow Koulibaly was able to chase him down win the ball perfectly cleanly with a slide tackle and then save the ball from going out for a corner then in the second half he made the slide tackle to clear the Ivan Perisic cross that one in all likelihood prevented a goal because Dumfries was waiting behind Koulibaly to tap the ball in and then the third was the double slide tackle in the second half first on Dumfries and then on Dzeko so this was a vintage Koulibaly performance both in terms of the quality of his play and in the fact that he played both center back and left back because in truth Mario Rui wasn't very good but he had the Comandante there to clean up after him. Altogether this was an excellent defensive performance from the entire team. This was the best that any team defended Inter all season. Even though Atalanta held Inter off the score sheet, Inter still had four or five quality scoring opportunities in that match, they just didn't take them. Inter's XG in that match was 1.5 compared to 0.5 in this match which was actually their lowest XG all season. That's why I don't agree with anyone who said that we had a bad match because defensively this was a fantastic performance. Yes, we could have been better in the attack but if we were great defensively for the entire match and great in the attack for about a third of the match then I cannot say that this was a poor performance. My second key to the match was that we needed to let the ball do the work. I'm going to say that we failed in this regard. Like I said, we were great in the first half hour of the match but Inter took control of the match after that. We allowed Inter to control the tempo in the second half for reasons we've already discussed. One thing I didn't see too many people talking about was all the mistakes that we made in our passing, particularly in the second half. We didn't simply sit back and defend in the second half, rather we had to defend so much because time and time again we conceded possession very cheaply. There was the Fabian back pass all the way back to our own corner, there was a pass by Elmas for Zielinski that went straight out to touch, we had Mario Rui pass the ball straight back to Lautaro which led to an inter counter attack, there was a play where Lobotka and Zielinski were not on the same page and as a result Lobotka's pass went to no one, and there was a play where Di Lorenzo had Osimen wide open and all alone in the middle of the park and passed the ball straight to Handanovic. All of those errant passes resulted in turnovers and as a result Inted had more possession in the second half so if anything the ball worked more for Inted than it did for us. My final key to the match was that we needed to test Samir Handanovic. The idea here was that while Handanovic is still capable of winning matches he is also prone to the occasional error so at the very least we would need to test him out. I'm going to call this one a push because we did test him it just so happens that we ran into Handanovic on a good day. He made two saves in particular that stood out ironically both were in the second half even though offensively we were better in the first half. The first was on Osimhen after Barella played a wayward pass intended for Brozovic. It is worth noting that Inter made their fair share of mistakes in this match as well. This mistake nearly led to a goal but Handanovic got just enough of the ball to keep it out at the near post. I thought Victor had a really strong match, he was involved in most of the attacking threats and as usual he does so much off the ball that just isn't picked up by the stats. He's incredibly useful as an outlet when we're under pressure which we saw in the final 10 minutes of the first half. On a couple of occasions we simply booted the ball long to clear the danger. Now with most strikers those balls would go straight back to the opponent and we'd be right back on our back heels but Victor manages to chase them down or he controls the ball and he has the strength to hold it up. As a result we went from desperate defending to attacking and that relieves pressure on our back line. 
Unfortunately, he wasn't able to score in this match. He came close to scoring in the first half, but his shot hit the outside of the goal. And then, of course, he won the penalty. DeVry committed the foul there. I thought he really struggled to mark Osiman in the first half, but he had a decent second half. The other big save Handanovic made was on Eli Felmas after Insigne crossed the ball to the back post. Handanovic made himself big and somehow kept the ball out. Now, even if we scored, that goal would not have counted. I'm pretty sure Victor handled the ball before it got to Elmas, and even if he didn't, that touch would have put Elmas offside. So those were the two times we tested Handanovic, but there were other occasions where we should have tested him and we didn't. We really need to work on our counterattack because we had a couple of counterattacks in the second half and we didn't even come close to taking a shot. Finally, perhaps the most frustrating of all, was the free kick at the very end of the match. There was basically no time left and for some reason Unas played the ball short instead of crossing it directly into the area. We did eventually put the ball into the area but straight into the gloves of Handanovic. Even Spalletti was left in shock on the touchline after that one so you know that was not a set piece. So we achieved our first key to the match, we did not achieve our second key to the match and we pushed on our third which taken together is consistent with a draw. That will do for part one. In part two, we'll review our latest Primavera match. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. Next, let's review our latest Primavera match, which was against Bologna on Sunday. Bologna came into this match sitting third from the bottom of the table on 16 points. Bologna is coached by Luca Vigiani. Vigiani is quite familiar with Napoli's coach Nicolo Frustalupi. They worked together under Walter Mazzari for one season at Watford in 2016-17. Frustalupi was Mazzari's assistant coach while Vigiani was a technical coach. Two years later, Vigiani joined Bologna as the U17 manager where he spent two seasons before getting promoted to his current role. Frustalupi went on to work for three seasons as an assistant at Torino, before returning to Napoli this season to lead the Primavera. Of course, his first stint at Napoli was as Mazzari's assistant from the 09-10 season, up to and including the 2012-13 season. Back to Bologna, for a team near the bottom of the table, they were actually in decent form heading into this match. They had won three of their previous six matches. They beat Empoli 3-0 before losing to Torino to end 2021. They started 2022 with a loss to Fiorentina, then won back-to-back matches against Hellas Verona and Pescara before losing to Milan. So they collected nine of a possible 18 points in the six matches prior to this one. Meanwhile, Napoli were coming off of a loss to Hellas Verona after starting the calendar year with back-to-back victories over Genoa and Spal. We've played so well that three of our players were called up to the Italy U19 squad for a friendly match against Turkey. Antonio Vergara, Giuseppe Ambrosino, and Giuseppe D'Agostino all got the call-up for the friendly, which was played on Wednesday of last week. If I'm not mistaken, that's why we didn't play our makeup game against Fiorentina midweek, 
because the other four teams played their makeup games on the 9th of February. Ambrosino was the only player to get the start out of the three, and once again he made an impact. Just before the break, he won a penalty that was converted by Juve's U23 midfielder Fabio Miretti, so Ambrosino was awarded with an assist on the goal. Because it was a friendly, the U19 manager Carmine Nunziata changed his entire squad at the break, so Vergara and D'Agostino got to play a full half as well. They all returned to Napoli in time to be available for this match, so Frustalupi had a pretty full squad. He was only missing two players, both of whom are recovering from long-term injuries. Daniel Hisai had his nasal septum surgically repaired after a head-to-head collision in the Genoa match, and Gennaro Iaccherino, who suffered a knee injury in the very first round of the season, which happened to be against this Bologna side. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. For Bologna, Vigiani lined up in a 3-5-2 with Nicola Bagnolini in goal. Wisdom Ami, Riccardo Stivanello, and Kevin Mercier played as the back three. Ebenezer Anand started at left wing back, and January purchase Kali Walius started at right wing back. Mattia Paliuka played in the center of the midfield with Javar Bino to his left and Nicolas Paitia to his right. Finally, Antonio Raimondo and Matias Rocchi started as the two strikers. For Napoli, Frustalupi didn't make any changes to the squad that he fielded against Hellas Verona in the previous round. He lined up in a 3-5-2 with Huberti Dasiak in goal. Davide Costanzo, Benedetto Barba, and Musa Mane played as the back three. Enrico Giannini started at left wing back and Matteo Marchisano started at right wing back. Coli Sacco played in the center of the midfield with Alessandro Spavone to his left and Antonio Vergara to his right. And finally, Antonio Cioffi and Giuseppe D'Agostino played as the two strikers. So those were the starting lineups, next let's get to the match. This was a really entertaining match and it was a really physical match. It was clear to me that Bologna's plan was to play us tough, even if that meant conceding fouls. That would still break up the play and prevent us from getting into any kind of rhythm. Ami alone made three strong fouls in the opening quarter of the match before he was eventually cautioned for multiple fouls. But that physical play seemed to work. Bologna got the first chance of the half from a corner kick. Mercier got a free header in the area, but he wasn't able to hit the target. Bologna stayed positive though, and only four minutes later they took the lead. Stevanello carried the ball across midfield before playing a long ball forward. Both Mane and Raimundo went up for the ball, but neither of them got a touch on it. Instead, it got through to Rocchi in the area. He took it down really well with the outside of his right boot, then with his second touch he pushed the ball ahead of himself to set up the shot, and finally he struck the ball very cleanly with his left, past the Dasiak and into the bottom corner at the far post. So Bologna jumped out to an early lead only 13 minutes into the match. That's become a bit of a problem lately. In four of our previous six matches we conceded the first goal, and we lost all four of those matches. And in the other two, we scored first, and we won both of the matches, so this wasn't a good way to start the match. The Azzurini responded really well, though the visitors barely got a sniff of our goal for the balance of the half. Bologna continued to play physically, but they started to foul us in more dangerous areas. On a couple of occasions, we crossed the ball into the area, but Bragnolini was the first to the ball. On another, about midway through the half, Chofi went direct for goal, but his shot finished over the bar. The player who seemed to be most likely to score was Koli Sacco. That makes sense given how many free kicks we had. He's so tall that he's usually the target man in the area on set pieces, but he needs to work on his finishing. He won a couple of headers in the area, but he either got under the ball or missed the target. Sacco's best chance was around the midway point of the first half. 
Vergara dispossessed Amy just outside of the Bologna area, then quickly turned and slipped the ball through for Sacco. He had only Bagnolini to beat, but the keeper kicked out his right foot to stop the low shot. Other than the goal, Bologna's only chance of the half was a left-footed effort by Paitia from just outside the area. He shot towards the bottom corner, but Idasiak was well-positioned and made a routine catch. Bologna nearly had another chance a few minutes before the break, but Barba made an important tackle on Rocchi in the area to break up the attack. Meanwhile, Napoli had one more big chance in the half. Sacco was fouled at midfield, but Vergara picked up the ball, so the official correctly played the advantage. Vergara carried into space and, like Paitia, hit a low, powerful shot from just outside the area. The shot hit the middle of the goal, but Branulini was leaning towards his right, so he had to come back to his left to make what turned out to be a fine save. That was the final chance for either side in the first half, so we went into the break down 1-0. Given Bologna's position in the table, this was a match that Frustalupi wanted to win, so he brought in his super sub much earlier than he normally does. Normally Ambrosino comes in between the 65th and the 75th minute, but this time he replaced D'Agostino at the break. Once again, the change paid immediate dividends only two minutes after the restart. Ambrosino scored the equalizer with a perfect header into the bottom corner. Shout out to Marquisano on this play. First, he won the ball back deep in Bologna territory before then winning a throw-in. Then from the throw-in, he played a perfect ball into the area for Ambrosino. As good as Bragnolini was in this match, the cross was played into the 6-yard box, so he probably should have attacked the ball. Instead, he retreated back into the goal and was basically a sitting duck when Ambrosino won the header. Credit to Bologna though, they didn't put their heads down after the goal, instead they nearly equalized immediately after the restart. Stevanello played a long ball over the top to Rocchi, who once again got behind our back line. With Barba, Costanzo and Mane all chasing him, Rocchi tried to chip Idasiak from outside the area and he nearly pulled it off, it took an outstretched Idasiak to keep the ball out. Then the rebound fell to Walius, but his effort missed the target as well. There was quite a bit of back and forth in the opening 10 minutes of the second half. In the 51st minute, Marquisano played a long ball to Ambrosino on the right wing. He did really well to hold up the play before playing the ball back to Spavone, who quickly squared to Sacco in the middle of the park. Sacco went from goal from about 30 yards out and hit the target, but he caught too much of the goal and Bragnolini made the save. Then about a minute later, we very nearly took the lead. Costanzo stepped up to win the ball back off of a Bologna throw-in. Chofi made a lovely parabola to get past Mercier on the left wing and then picked out Ambrosino in the area. He took one touch to control the pass and then tried to pick the bottom corner, but he didn't connect fully and Bragnolini was able to make the save again. That proved to be a really important moment in the match. Less than a minute after we missed that huge opportunity to go ahead, Bologna scored their second goal. The play started with a throw-in to Paitia, who immediately sent the ball long for Raimondo. For the third time in the match, a Bologna striker got behind our back line. I hate to pick on any one player, especially with the Primavera, but Giannini was largely at fault for this one. Barba and Costanzo both pushed up to midfield to play the offside, but Giannini wasn't on the same page. He was about 10 yards inside our own half and consequently played Raimondo onside. Credit to Raimondo, he took his goal really well. He made a couple of good touches before beating Idasiak at the near post. That was Raimondo's second goal against us this season. He scored in the first meeting as well. 
that left us with about 35 minutes to take the lead back and for the next 20 minutes or so it looked like we might just do that the azzurini led by ambrosino pushed forward in pursuit of the equalizer in the 57th minute he attempted a bicycle kick from just inside the area but it finished well over the bar we came really close a few minutes after that vergara skipped past paliuca before playing marquisano down the line I thought both Vergara and Marquisano played really well in this match. Marquisano crossed the ball into the area and Giannini got to the ball first. His first header went straight up in the air but he followed the ball and played a second header on target but Ami made a great play to head the ball off the line. Despite being cautioned in the first half for repeat offenses, Ami had a really strong match. He made another important clearance in the 61st minute. Giannini launched the ball forward to Ambrosino. He was 1v2 with Stevenello and Ami but still managed to take the ball down. Then he blew past Stevenello towards the left side of the area. Meanwhile, Trophy made the run into the area and Ambrosino tried to pick him out, but Ami was there to clear the danger once again. That was the final action for Trophy. He was replaced by Giovanni Mercurio shortly thereafter. That might have been because Trophy was starting to get a little bit heated. Moments before coming off, he got into the face of Walius after Walius made a professional foul on Trophy in the open field. Mercurio nearly made an immediate impact in the 72nd minute, Sacco won a free kick just inside our own half. Costanzo played a long ball forward which got past both Ambrosino and Stevenello who both went up for the header and bounced into the area. Mercurio chased the ball down and got the shot off from the corner of the 6 yard box. Given how the play developed, it was actually a really strong effort but Bagnolini made himself big and got just enough of the ball to push it out for a corner. That was probably his best save of the match. Given the score and the timing of the save, it was definitely his most important save, but the work wasn't done there. Napoli came close to scoring on the ensuing corner kick. Vergara crossed the ball into the area. Bragnolini went up for the catch and dropped the ball. Unfortunately, we did not have anyone there to poke it in. Then moments later, we won another corner kick. This time Mercurio took an outswinging corner towards the near post where Marquezano won the header, but it finished wide of the far post. Just before that sequence, Vijani made two changes. He replaced Valius with Tommaso Corazza and Rocchi with Kasper Pananin. They proved to be two really important substitutions. After that Marquezano chance, Bologna took back control of the match and Corazza and Pananin played a big role in that. The two nearly combined for a goal in the 76th minute. Corazza picked out Pananin with a cross to the back post, but the Finn wasn't able to hit the target with his header. Pananin got another chance about 5 minutes later. Once again Bologna went long, this time Paitia picked out substitute Mattia Kupani on the wing. He did well to hold up the play with Mane marking him before playing the ball into Pananin. He dribbled past Barba on the left side of the area, but his shot from a tight angle finished well off target. But it was all Bologna at the end of the match. In the 84th minute, Anand crossed the ball into the area. Barba headed clear but only to Kupani at the edge of the area. He hit the ball first time on the volley and didn't miss by much. Then in the 89th minute, Pananin picked up the ball this time on the right wing before slipping it through to another substitute, Alessandro Petrelli in the middle of the park. He carried towards the top of the box and went for goal but the shot was always rising and finished over the bar. Nevertheless, with Bologna creating so many chances and generally controlling the run of play, we had a tough time creating any chances of our own. In fact, we didn't create any more chances and the match finished 2-1 in favor of the away side. 
So after winning back-to-back matches to start the calendar year, we've now lost back-to-back matches and both were against teams near the bottom of the table. As a result, we've now dropped to 12th in the table, albeit with a game in hand. The table is so tight that we are now only 6 points clear of the relegation playoff, while at the same time being only 6 points behind Juventus in 3rd. Assuming we won that game in hand, we'd be tied with Genoa in 6th place, which is the final place for the championship playoff. There is still a long way to go though, this was the 18th round out of 36, so we've just reached the midway point of the season. The Azzurini will be back in action on Tuesday for a midweek fixture against Sampdoria, so that match might have been played by the time you hear this episode. That will be a really difficult match, Sampdoria have 5 wins and a draw in their last 6, but I think Napoli are capable of beating just about any club in the league, and for whatever reason, we seem to play better away from home. That will do for part 2, in part 3 we'll return to the senior team and preview the first leg of our Europa League playoff against Barcelona. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking, uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that, it's just these cash prizes add up quick, so I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to part three of the Forza Napoli podcast. We'll close the pod with a preview of our delectable match against Barcelona on Thursday. This is the real Maradona Cup, not a friendly match between Barcelona and Boca Juniors played in Saudi Arabia, not a friendly match between Napoli and Argentinos Juniors to be played sometime in the future. This is the Maradona Cup. It is the marquee tie of the Europa League playoff round. Some people are mistakenly calling this the round of 32. That's not actually the case. If anything, with the new tournament rules and structure, you would call this the round of 24, I guess. Barcelona are a European heavyweight. I don't know if we would call Napoli a European heavyweight, but these are two teams who are more accustomed to playing in the Champions League than in the Europa League. This match certainly has a Champions League feel to it. The clubs are similar in the sense that the last year or two have not gone as planned. I don't need to remind you about what we went through as a club and as a fan base. Needless to say, this is our second consecutive season playing in the Europa League. Barcelona started this year in the Champions League but finished third in Group E behind Bayern Munich and Benfica so they were relegated to the Europa League. That was really representative of the season that Barcelona have had so far. The problems actually began before the start of the season. Barcelona's previous leadership led by Josep Bartomeu racked up 731 million euros in short-term debt just from player transfers in the previous three seasons. That increased their total debt to 1.35 billion euros. They had so much debt that they could not renew Lionel Messi's contract even if the player wanted to play for free. That was primarily because of La Liga's version of financial fair play or economic cost control measures to stop clubs from overspending. A club cannot register new signings without first generating new revenue or cost savings, but because Messi's contract was expiring, he would be considered a new signing and effectively go to the bottom of the list. It took Messi and Griezmann's wages to come off the books and Gerard Piquet to take a pay cut 
just for Barcelona to be able to register Memphis Depay and Eric Garcia. Barcelona's cost reduction efforts, including Messi, Griezmann, and Piquet, lowered their wage bill from 432 million euros to 277 million, which was still well above their league-imposed squad cost limit or salary cap of 97 million euros. The savings on Aguero's salary and Umtiti's renewal are what enabled the team to register Ferran Torres, Adama Traore, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, and Dani Alves. Meanwhile, the club's troubles off the field were echoed on the field. For the majority of the season, Barcelona have been outside of the top four. For a few weeks, they had dropped as far down as ninth in the table. The injuries certainly haven't helped them. Memphis scored eight goals and added two assists in the opening 16 matches of the season, but he's been out since, first with a hamstring injury and then with an Achilles injury. Barcelona's wonder kid Ansu Fati has missed most of the season with a hamstring injury as well, and others have also missed time. But it seems the worst is behind them now. In November, Barcelona appointed club legend Xavi as their new manager, and so began their climb back to the top four. Barcelona have collected six wins, three draws, and only one loss since Xavi took the reins. That's still more points dropped than we're accustomed to seeing from Barcelona, but it's been good enough to get them back into the top four. That makes me wonder how Barcelona will approach the Europa League. A few weeks ago, my expectation was that they were going to take the Europa League very seriously and in fact make it the top priority because at the time, winning the Europa League seemed like the most likely route for them to get back into the Champions League. Now I'm not so sure. On the one hand, I think they're entrenched in a heated battle for a top four finish in La Liga. Real Betis are currently in third on 43 points. Barcelona are in fourth on 39 points, tied with Atletico Madrid. Real Sociedad are in 6th on 38 points, and Villarreal have 36 points. That's a tight race for Champions League qualification, so Barcelona may want to rest their players in the Europa League. On the other hand, the Europa League may still be a fallback plan just in case they don't finish in the top 4. So I'm inclined to think that, at least for the time being, they will take the competition seriously. The exact same thing can be said for Napoli. We have perhaps a more comfortable position in the table... Assuming Atalanta win their game in hand against Torino, which is by no means a given, Juventus would be 7 points behind us in 5th, and we own the head-to-head record. However, we are currently 2 points back of Milan in 1st, and potentially 4 points back of Inter if they win their game in hand against Bologna. So we have plenty left to play for in the league, and we have a very difficult run-in. We still have matches against an inform Lazio, Milan, Atalanta, Fiorentina, Roma, and Sassuolo, However, a Europa League Cup would be the most important trophy we've won since our second Scudetto in 1989-90. As many people have pointed out, we're not going to win the Champions League next year should we be so fortunate to qualify, so this is a rare opportunity for us to win something big, and for that reason, I think we will also take both competitions seriously. If both teams take this match seriously, as I suggested they would, we could be in for a really entertaining tie. Barcelona will be missing a number of players for this match though. Ronald Araujo has a calf injury, Clément Lenglet has a hamstring injury, and Samuel Utiti has a fractured toe. Dani Alves is not named in the Europa League squad, and Sergi Roberto and Ansu Fati both have hamstring injuries. Memphis is expected to return from an injury to his Achilles tendon, and Aubameyang should be in the squad as well, but neither of them have played in a while, so I doubt they will start the match. For Napoli, Axel Twanzebe was not named in the Europa League squad and he's been dealing with some lower back pain. 
Meanwhile, Stanislav Lobotka, Matteo Politano, and Chucky Lozano all did therapy on Tuesday for their respective injuries, so at the moment it seems unlikely that any of them will be in the squad. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. I think we'll see Barcelona line up in a 4-3-3 with Marc-Andre Ter Stegen in goal. Barcelona are really low on centre-backs at the moment. Gerard Piquet was sent off in the Catalan derby against Espanyol on Sunday, so you would expect him to play this match since he'll be suspended for Barcelona's next league match, which is against Valencia. Eric Garcia was pretty awful in that Espanyol match, but Barcelona don't really have many other options at the moment. They could use Oscar Minguesa, but I'm going to go with Garcia to start. Barcelona are pretty thin at fullback as well. Their only left back is Jordi Alba, and with Dani Alves not in the squad, their only right back is Serginho Dest. With the likes of Martin Brathwaite, Aubameyang, and possibly Memphis all in the squad, Xavi has a lot more flexibility with his front six. He could play either of Aubameyang or Ferran Torres at striker. Aubameyang could also play on the left wing, which would then allow Gavi to drop back into the midfield. Of those players, I think Aubameyang would be the most likely to start, but I'm actually expecting the exact same front six that we saw against Espanyol. Sergio Busquets played at the Regista with Frankie de Jong to his left and Pedri to his right. Gavi played on the left wing, Adama Traore played on the right wing, and Ferran Torres played at striker. For Napoli, I think Luciano Spalletti will make quite a few changes to the squad that he fielded against Inter, starting with Alex Meret over David Ospina in goal. I think we'll see Kalidou Koulibaly and Amir Rachmani start again at centre-back. I'm going to go with Juan Jesus at left-back. Anyone who knows about Barcelona will probably know why, but I'll come back to that shortly. As usual, Giovanni Di Lorenzo should start at right-back. I'm curious to see if he will be wearing a brace on his right elbow because he seemed to be in quite a bit of pain after falling on that arm in the Inter match. With Lobotka hurt, we should see Frank Zamboangisa start in the double pivot alongside Fabian Ruiz. Lorenzo Insigne will start on the left wing. The big question is, with Politano and Lozano hurt, who will start on the right wing? Personally, I think Elif Elmas will get the start with Adam Unas providing an option off the bench, but there has been some speculation that Kevin Malqui could start there instead. With how Elmas played on the right wing against Inter, Malqui may not be that bad of an option. Finally, even though I included Victor Osiman in my predicted 11 on Twitter, I did that in error, that was just force of habit. I actually think Dries Mertens will start this one, and I'll explain why in just a moment. So those are our starting lineups, next let's get to our three keys to the match. My first key to the match is we need to force Adama to the middle. Adama is an absolute tank and he likes to run at and pass defenders, he certainly has the pace to do that, but he's fairly predictable, you know that he wants to run down the line, and cross the ball into the area. Apparently against Espanyol, Barca played 25 crosses into the area, and Barcelona have also scored 10 goals from headers this season, which I believe is the most in La Liga. So we know Traore will be looking to cross the ball. Now, as far as I'm aware, he's not that great of a crosser anyway, but if you're able to force him to cut in, then he's almost guaranteed to give the ball away. Now with Traore's size, that's a lot easier said than done, but that's why I have Juan Jesus in the starting 11. He may not have the pace, but he does have the size. This is also why it makes sense for Barcelona to play Gavi on the left wing, because he's an inverted winger. That provides a nice balance. It's not dissimilar to when we play with Insigne and Lozano. On the right, you have Traore, who runs down the line. And on the left, you have an inverted winger in Gavi, who could cut in and shoot, cross, or play Jordi Alba 
on the overlap. My second key to the match is that we should press high now. This is something I would like to see, but it's not actually something I'm expecting. I want us to press high because I think Barcelona's back line is their biggest weakness. I mentioned the Eric Garcia error against Espanyol. I think perhaps this guy is a little too harshly criticized. It seems like everyone jumps on him when he makes mistakes, but he doesn't get a whole lot of recognition when he plays well. I was listening to a Barcelona podcast to prep for this episode and they described Serginho Dest as the player who has declined the most since last season and I mentioned the lack of depth so if we press that back line then I think we can force them into making mistakes. The reason why I'm not expecting us to press is simply because we are the away team. Even though I'm glad there is no more away goal rule, one thing that was good about it is that it encouraged the away side to attack. With that rule gone, the away side will be more inclined to play for a draw because then they only need to win at home to advance. Given what we saw against Inted, I suspect we are going to play for a draw in this match. That's why I think Mertens will start if we wanted to press, then it makes more sense to start Osiman, obviously because of his pace. There have also been reports that Osiman may have picked up a minor muscle injury that'll not remove him from the squad, but I think that makes it even less likely that he will start. However, given Barcelona's lack of depth at the back, and assuming he's fit to play, I do like the idea of subbing Osiman on midway through the second half to run at those tired defenders. We'll definitely do that if we fall behind, but even if the score is tied, I would bring on Osiman perhaps a little bit later to try to snatch a late victory. Looking ahead at the schedule, you might say that we can afford to play Osiman in this match and then rest him against Caliody. If we were still in the first half of the season, I might have agreed with that approach, but Caliody have actually been in fine form of late. They've collected 11 points in 6 matches in 2022. That is more points than they collected in the entire first half of the season, so I actually do want to see Osman play against Caliody. My final key to the match is that we need to involve Fabian Ruiz as much as possible. According to the latest reports, Fabian does not intend to extend his contract, which expires in 2023. Napoli have been trying to renew Fabian for quite some time and as far as I can tell, we've made absolutely no progress. I'm glad we didn't sell Fabian this summer though as I thought we might because Fabian had just come off one of the worst seasons of his career at Napoli with Spalletti joining the club and redefining Fabian as a regista, the Spaniard has had a bit of a rebirth. He's played really well this season which means his value at the end of this season should be significantly higher than it was at the start of the season. That means if we do sell him this summer, we should collect a handsome transfer fee. So you might ask, why should we involve a player who seems like he wants out of Napoli? The answer is that we know Fabian, like many Spaniards, would like to return to Spain. We also know that this will be the biggest match on Thursday. So in effect, this match will be like a tryout for Fabian. Pretty much all of Spain will be watching him and he will know it. So for that reason, I think Fabian will be eager to impress, so we might as well give him the ball and let him do his thing. Everyone but Barcelona would benefit from a strong performance by Fabian. For my prediction, I'm going to go with a 1-1 draw, I'll give the goals to Dries Mertens for Napoli and Pedri for Barcelona. As I mentioned, I think we are probably going to play for a draw here. I wouldn't be shocked if this match finished in a scoreless draw or even a 1-0 Napoli win. I also wouldn't be surprised if this was not the most entertaining match. There will be a lot of hype around this match and sometimes when that happens, the match can let you down. 
One player I haven't mentioned yet, but we do need to look out for is Luke de Jong. He scored four goals in his last five matches. He scored against Mallorca and Granada in back-to-back league matches. Then he scored against Real Madrid in the Supercopa. He didn't score against Alaves, but he made up for it by scoring a late equalizer against Espanyol. That was easily the most important goal of them all. With that goal, De Jong prevented Barcelona from suffering their first loss in 24 Catalan derbies. So hopefully we keep De Jong off the score sheet. Hopefully we keep all of Barcelona off the score sheet, even with Alex Medet in goal. And hopefully we walk away with the victory. So that will do for this preview. I hope you enjoy the match. That will also do for this episode, but before I let you go, I didn't have time to include a Napolitan song of the week in our last episode, so I'm going to do that here. The song I've picked for last week's episode is Enzo Graninello's Povero Muno. It's not his most popular song, but it's definitely one of my favorites. Granianello, who was born in the Quartieri Spagnoli, has been making music for a very long time. He started playing guitar when he was 12, and the first band he formed was called Banchi Novi, which was named after the Committee of Unemployed People to which he belonged. Granianello is famous in his own right, but some of his best songs are ones that he wrote for others, like Cumme, which was recorded by Roberto Murolo and Mia Martini. The multi-talented Graninello is also a composer of musical scores, plays, and films. He's also composed songs for some pretty heavy hitters, including Andrea Bocelli and Adriano Celentano. So that will do for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and leave us a review or a rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Portsanopoli Pod. I'll be back later in the week to review the Barcelona match, to review our midweek Primavera fixture against Sampdoria, and to preview our match at the weekend against Cagliari. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.